Is school choice going to pass in the coming legislative session? What is our legislature going to do about leftist social credit scores? And once again, we talk with taxpayer champion Representative Slayton about the controversial topic of Democrat chairs. Let's get into it. Taxpayer Talks is brought to you by Texans for Fiscal Responsibility, and it's only made possible from generous donations from listeners like you. If you want to support our work, you can visit texastaxpayers.com slash donate to make a tax-deductible contribution today. Thank you. Hey, Jeremy, how you doing today, man? Doing good, doing good. Good, good to hear, man. So let's let's go on into it. We uh, we had an article I wrote this week about school choice. Of course, this is a topic that uh, has has had a lot of uh, focus from grassroots and uh, the Republican platform. Uh, we have not really seen a whole lot of bills out there uh, yet. But the the question I kind of dealt with is: Is this is even going to happen? Uh, is it going to be another kind of status quo, kind of give the bare minimum uh, solution that the Texas legislature is, is famous for? Or are we going to get some real school choice and put uh, power in the parents' hands this legislative session? What do you think? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of noise around it, right? And, uh, you know, both you and I, at least experiencing the Capitol, know that just because there's a lot of noise doesn't mean there's a, there's, it's politically viable, uh, right? I, I will say, I think this upcoming legislative session compared to previous le- legislative sessions, there's des- definitely a, um, a, a groundswell of support from a lot more activists, right? Outside of the kind of normal sort of thing. I think, you know, obviously uh, having COVID happen and having parents actually see what a lot of their, uh, uh, their kids were either learning or not learning uh, right in their respective classrooms um, on top of just some of this kind of just leftist stuff that's just taking place um, in general um, uh, across the uh, across the state where you see people standing up to school boards and stuff has certainly added uh, some fuel to the fire. I think the question is, um, you know, what has changed politically for lawmakers who have historically been opposed to such an idea, um, especially in the Texas House of Representatives that suddenly um, allows them to come on to some side of whatever a school choice program looks like, which to your point, we still don't have the details of, right? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, things that are happening nationwide. I think a lot of it, you, you nailed it, is COVID policy, uh, the masking policy, the gender, you know, pushing trans agenda stuff on, on kids. And we're seeing, more importantly, multiple other states pass school choice legislation, which is putting pressure on Texas uh, as a supposed conservative bastion. Um, and so the question is, how how willing is the legislature to pass Real school choice. Uh, you and I both know being in the legislature that they this, they've tried this before, right? They've tried school choice. I want to say it was maybe 2017 when they tried to push the ESA, the education savings account. Um, I would imagine it'll probably something similar to that, although we don't have a, a solid bill that leadership has put their their weight behind. You know, I think the most concerning thing uh, that I've seen so far is Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and uh, he, him saying that he is going to bracket out rural counties uh, of any school choice legislation that comes up. And, and that's that's really concerning uh, for a number of different reasons. So the you know, the, the biggest reason I would say uh, that a lot of people don't know is in rural 
uh, districts, many times public education is the biggest employer uh, in, in those rural counties. And so the TEA and others have come and fear-mongered teachers saying that, hey, if we pass school choice or some voucher system, you're going to lose your job. The sky is going to fall. And, and none of these are true. As a matter of fact, school choice and competition is going to help both students and teachers uh, have better education, have uh, better wages for teacher as competition uh, increases, uh, you will have more opportunities for teachers, not less. And so just the fact that he uh, says he's going to bracket that out, essentially what he's saying is, I'm sorry, rural students don't get school choice. Only urban students get school choice. And so it's it's kind of concerning, but we'll see as we go along what uh, what's what's really going to come about in the, in the Senate specifically. Yeah, I, I think there's a few things here, right? It's like, one, the session hasn't even started yet, and it's very odd to have a statewide elected leader, right, uh, the leader of one of the legislative chambers kind of already abdicate, right, or compromise on an issue. Now, undoubtedly, they're having these conversations behind the scenes, but it's very odd that you would just immediately kind of like give away the farm, right? Um, not to mention that, you know, at some point, taxpayers should be concerned uh, for a whole host of things, but we shouldn't want state policy to be good for one group of people and not good for another, right? And that it's, as is always the case with these quote unquote bracketed bills, right? And they normally bracket them by population, right? It's normally what they would do, which is what I assume, you know, this would take the form of, you know, if, if we're asking lawmakers to craft statewide policy, it should be good for everyone and everybody and every, like we should all reap the benefit there. And so it's, it's definitely concerning having a statewide leader um, basically say that it's not good enough for whatever population threshold um, is considered for rural communities. That's a very concerning, but it also tells me that the conversations that are happening behind the scenes, right, um, certainly are stemming from that issue, right, um, which – you know, it certainly speaks to what we just mentioned. Historically, a lot of, it's mainly been rural lawmakers on both the Republican and Democrat side uh, that have kind of pushed back against this idea, especially in the Texas House of Representatives. Yeah, I think the the other really concerning thing that I see is is how is this going to affect our budget? Uh, you know, education is a little over half of our our budget right now in the state, and there is. Um, likely going to be costs associated with school choice. I, I, my personal opinion is we're likely not going to see them cut public education funding. We're probably going to see them try to add funding to uh, this school choice program, whatever it is, which is ultimately going to be bad for taxpayers. Um, I, I think a lot of people go uh, or kind of believe the narrative that public schools have been saying that they're always short on cash. They don't, they don't have enough to pay their teachers and, all these are lies. Uh, I think it was uh, James Quintero who just came out recently with TPPF and said that his public schools are flush with cash. Uh, Van Scan has said the same thing, and they are. They have billions and billions. They're, they're more flush with cash than they have ever been in the history of Texas. Yet we're still crying that teachers need more money. We're still crying about a lot of things. And hey, that might be the case. We're not saying the teacher doesn't need more money. We're saying the money is already there. You could give teachers more money uh, if you just show some fiscal restraint. But so far, public education has been unwilling to do that, which is one reason why we do need school choice uh, to create some competition and to and to kind of force them into fiscal responsibility. But I am worried that the solution is to kind of pay off 
you know, the public education system by giving them even more money to kind of hush them up while we pass this separate school choice program that's also going to cost billions of dollars. And then ultimately, you know, that that big fat surplus and the idea of property tax reform all just kind of fades away into the background as we just pour more and more money into education. It's definitely there's just so many concerns here, certainly. Right. It's uh, I think without knowing what a plan looks like is probably chief among them, right? You had Governor Abbott earlier this year come out with this kind of this equivalent of contract with parents or parent empowerment without specifically giving any details on what, if anything, that if, if it even meant school choice or not. Obviously, historically, he's been supportive of that. You briefly mentioned, I think it was 2017, I think you're right, where there was this big push by statewide leaders, right, and a bunch of um, other kind of like more senior, you know, state senators and what have you to support school choice. They had their yellow, you know, yeah. scarves around and everything. And it was an emergency item, right, of, of the governors. And then the next session, it was nowhere to be found. No one talked about it, right? In fact, what's interesting is last legislative session, even though there were bills that kind of did different things and made school choice programs in limited ways, none of them went anywhere. In fact, the only vote that took place that's related to school choice happened in the Texas House of Representatives on budget night as an amendment. And it was overwhelmingly voted down basically saying that no no funding no appropriations from the state budget can be used for a voucher program overwhelmingly voted down by both democrats and republicans and so you have to wonder what has changed if anything going into this next legislative session uh with regard to this yeah i ultimately i think it's it's culture right the culture is screaming that they want school choice uh, Texas is screaming that they want what other states have. Uh, and quite honestly, you know, the, the kids who would be most affected are, you know, kind of more poor urban areas who typically have really bad failing schools, or they used to be failing schools before we did away with the F grade. Now they're just un <laughs> unrated. Right. Um, but, uh, it's, it's necessary that we pass this. However, uh, we will hold our breath and we will see what the legislature comes up with this next go round. Uh, but let's transition to uh, the article you wrote, uh, Jeremy. Why don't you uh, tell us about that? Yeah. So, you know, uh, lawmakers obviously having the ability to pre-file legislation ahead of the um, upcoming legislative session. Uh, some so There's been some interesting uh, bills that have been filed. Some of the more notable ones, at least uh, the ones I wrote about here, uh, were with regard to prohibiting um, social credit scores. Now, for those that maybe don't know what that is, right? Uh, there was certainly, there's a famous episode of Black Mirror, uh, uh, which kind of uh, highlighted this. But, you know, I think the most notable government slash kind of quasi business interest government combination in the world that currently implements what's called social credit scoring is that of China, right? Communist government of China, uh, they do so very well. And ultimately what it is, is it's a kind of this arbitrary algorithmic score, right? That each citizen is given based on things that they do. There's variations there, right? It's how they act on social media, maybe organizations they're a part of, political parties they're a part of, right? All of those sorts of things, um, they are limited and or given permission to do different things by both government and uh, um, uh, business interests via this kind of social media score. Now, Obviously, a lot of that, you know, it, it, there's there's a lot of variables that come with that. But you've had, especially over the really the last decade or so here in the United States, you've had um, kind of a combination, again, of government and 
uh, corporate or business interests who have attempted to kind of push these more leftist ideologies on on individuals by saying, well, you can't participate in this business or you can't do what uh, any whatever you know under this list under the sun um, unless you subscribe to these things, right? Most, most notably known and we've written about before called like ESG, right? Um, so anyway, in, in Texas, you've had two lawmakers. Uh, you've had Representative Steve Toth, who filed a bill um, attempting to prohibit uh, discrimination for anyone that wants to participate or engage in a business, right, uh, from being discriminated against based on things like a social credit score. Um, uh, you've got uh, Representative Cody Harris, um, who's got kind of a more limited bill that's specifically focused on lending institutions and banks, uh, right, from, uh, th- from having them not, uh, let's say, lend to you or give you money um, based on a social credit score. So uh, I thought it was interesting, you know, who knows if those uh, bills will actually go anywhere uh, this next legislative session. Obviously that has not started yet, but that's ultimately what they do. And it's interesting uh, uh, seeing at least on the house side, two lawmakers try to address that or, or get ahead of that uh, here in Texas. Yeah. I, uh, I don't, I don't know if the, the motivation is there this go around. There's just a lot on, legislators plates uh, i think it is uh, a noble cause i think that it's something that the states are going to have to start dealing with because uh, i i think we we see the beginnings of that in the united states specifically when we looked at the the vaccine passports right this was kind of a a proto social credit score system that they were trying to implement ultimately i believe it, it failed uh nationwide uh, but we legitimately saw people who did not have these these passports uh, in places in the country that you could not dine, you could not uh, do business. And so this is exactly what um, I think your more globalist leaning, uh, you know, lawmakers and politicians want to implement. I think and when you talk about, and maybe we get into the realm of a conspiracy here, but I, I think it's becoming more and more open that, you know, the the want to transition to a digital dollar. Uh, and to move away from a cashless society, to uh, implement social credit scores. Ultimately, all of these are systems of control that make it far easier uh, for those who are in control of a country to control the populace. And so what do we do in the United States? I think, you know, you and I have, have chosen, you know, our careers on state politics, I think for a reason, I think because we we view the state of the federal government as broken. I don't think that if Republicans get into power, even if we had all three, even with Trump and all three, I was very disappointed. Sure, there's some good policies implemented, but uh, we didn't drain the swamp. Let's get real. And uh, I think the reason is because the the it's a systemic problem. The The federal government is simply broken and the mechanism to fix the federal government is state sovereignty, I believe, uh, and and a, a strong state, which means we have to start looking at passing laws like this to protect the citizens of Texas, uh, even if uh, the federal government won't do this. And that, that applies to this, it applies to the border, it applies to a lot of different things uh, that there's just, just this huge disconnect between the people of Texas and the people of the United States as a whole. And I think if our lawmakers were wise and they genuinely want to protect and uh, to defend the citizens of Texas, we need to start thinking ahead and start getting ahead of some of these really bad policies that are absolutely coming our way. It's just a matter of time uh, before they start pushing this. I want to say uh, we're already talking about uh, vaccine passports at, you know, in the EU and at the, the uh, like all of this didn't happen. Like we just didn't have all of this fraud exposed uh, with all the pharmaceutical companies and the vaccine. But yet we're still pushing this agenda, which tells us that the desire 
to create a system of control for people is there, uh, especially when you have extremely bad actors and positions of power. I think, you know, to, to, I mentioned this in the article too. lawmakers to their credit last session did pass legislation uh, that specifically required, you know, a, a boycott of companies, if you will, that encourage divestment from things like fossil fuels, right? Obviously a huge source of revenue for the state. So why, you know, we, we shouldn't have state agencies, right. Or things kind of contracting with companies like this that encourage a, div- a divestment from that. I think what you might see, and we have not seen to my knowledge legislation file as of yet, but what you might see this session outside of what we talked about here with regard to social credit scores is maybe um, some uh, legislation, you know, addressing kind of the BlackRock issue or some of these other companies that have huge investments or that we, right, as a state, um, a state and local government level, right, allow these investments to things like our pensions and stuff like that to happen uh, with with companies that are basically encouraging the opposite of what makes our economy strong. I think you'll see some of that maybe this session. So as far as a political appetite, I don't know. You're right, right, as, as we go into the session, what that looks like. But it is at least encouraging to see that it's on lawmakers' radar. Um, hopefully it's not, if, if legislation does pass, it doesn't get weakened, um, along the way, but I think you're right. It is a complete state sovereignty issue. Um, and you know, it, hopefully, uh, lawmakers kind of wake up to that fact, um, as we continue to go through the legislative session. Yeah, we, we will see. So, uh, speaking of legislative session, we had our number one taxpayer champion, on uh, with us, and we will have the full episode released tomorrow morning on Friday. Uh, but we, he had some really interesting things to say. I'm talking about Representative Brian Slayton. He scored a 98 on our fiscal index. Uh, and so we asked him a, a lot of different questions. Uh, and so I uh, just want to show a couple clips from that uh, to give you all a sneak preview of the interview. So let's take a look at the first one. But I, let me just tell you, they put more effort into trying to figure out how to stop this vote than to just vote with what 80 over 81 percent of their county you know people in their counties wanted i mean it's such a no-brainer um i mean nobody wants nancy pelosi back in leadership in dc right we just took over the house no one wants aoc to get a chairmanship but in texas they're still really excited about the idea yeah i mean so it's quite interesting right like obviously he brought two rule amendments uh, that were both, you know, that both failed were shot down last legislative session. Uh, He's going to bring them again, right? Uh, uh, This next uh, legislative session, he speaks to kind of pressure uh, that, uh, you know, some unnamed uh, Republican leadership or leadership in general, and the house is putting um, on him to not have this vote be taken in the first few days of the legislative session. But I think what he speaks to is elections have consequences, right? And, you know, if, If you have a Republican majority in the legislature, you would think that that Republican majority would use, you know, their election as or their majority as a mandate to therefore get things that their party wants done. And in Texas, you have this kind of weird contradiction where Republican elected officials don't necessarily address the, quote, mandate, right, of putting them there from their own voters. Um, And so he's trying to remedy that uh, yet again. It's unclear this early on how much support from lawmakers he has. But um, as you'll see in the full episode, if you watch it on Friday morning, is he, he speaks to 
the fact that there's a lot more people that are aware this is an issue this cycle. You've got it's an official Republican Party of Texas legislative priority going in this next cycle. You've got a bunch of the state Republican leadership on the executive committee um, on board with this as well. Um, and so it'd be interesting to see if that pressure gets brought to bear on lawmakers. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of stuff he said, you and I are not really surprised by. We know how it works behind the scenes. We realize that he's be having pressure put on him to not bring this. Uh, and and it just shows that that the reality is that especially Republican leadership is very friendly with uh, the minority party Democrats. And the reason is because every leadership regime that has come into power over the last decade or two has done so by first securing the Democrat caucus uh, and then getting a couple of Republicans to jump in and then forcing everyone else to either get on the team or you're you're going to have an embarrassing session, right? This is what they've been doing for since Joe Strauss, Bonin, Phelan. They all do this. the The problem and the frustration from you know grassroots and the Republican Party side, right, is the Republican Party is is very similar to uh, like an abused wife, right? That that just keeps coming and being friendly with a party that calls them insurrectionists, racists, bigots, uh, and we have. Democrat representatives, uh, you know, especially when they left last go round in, in the first special session, calling all of the Republican colleagues these names, uh, these horrific lies, quite honestly, and, and pushing, you know, hardcore, woke, progressive um, ideology uh, that that Republicans in general absolutely disavow, which has caused a lot of the problems we're dealing with in society. But yet to people's frustration, the Republican Party continues to hold hands with Democrats by placing these same actors. And some of these are chairs that that call these names that, you know, that call you and I insurrectionists or Republican members of the, the House insurrectionists because of, you know, the January 6th protest or, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but I think people's frustration and the reason this is a priority is people are tired of it. They want a Republican Party, if you're in a majority, to fight and to punch back, not to be holding hands with the, the political enemy, which is, is really what's going on. It, it's, it's, it's no secret. You can look at how toxic politics is uh, nationwide. And I would say a lot of that is uh, specifically the far left-wing progressive woke branch of the Democrat Party kind of imposing their ideology, not, not only on the Democrat Party, but on the Republican Party. This is where we get cancellation of conservatives. All of this is a direct result of that. And so uh, I completely understand why a majority party who has been abused in that way would not want to give power uh, to, like he said, someone like a Nancy Pelosi or an AOC whose mission is to destroy conservative values. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's anyone that's watched the legislature, especially the last few cycles, right? It's if you consider yourself a Republican and you at least know what's in your platform and the policy and positions that you hold, um, it's we talk about the same issues every cycle, and it's because that Republican majority is not necessarily instituting the will of the, the Republican voters that put them there. You know, we're going into what I think it's the almost the third decade that uh, Republicans have controlled statewide uh, elected office, all statewide elected offices and the state legislature. And uh, here we are consistently talking about the same issues being left undone. And so I think this speaks to a litany of other issues that uh, within the party and the disunity within that political party, the Republican party um, to where like the majority really only exists on paper. Seemingly um, it's not necessarily how it works behind the scenes.
Yeah, I, I think, you know, you, you're, to your point that we're, you know, kind of in the third decade here, the fact that it took, you know, m- about 15 years or more to pass something as simplistic as a spending cap that capped spending at population plus inflation, that that was so difficult of a reform uh, that it took that long. It speaks volumes of where the Republican Party is in Texas and has been uh, for decades. And, uh, you know, on on that point, um, we have another hotbed issue that he dealt with, which is um, which is border security. So let's check out that clip and, and we'll have a conversation about it. How do you define success in our border security operations, right? We we have a flood of migrants that began almost two years ago, right? Um, last Jan- uh, January, two years ago, um, was when I first, you know, first heard about caravans coming. Have the caravans gotten smaller? Have the number of people coming across reduced? I don't think they have. So how can you say it's successful? And the idea of throwing more money at a problem that's going to fix it is exactly what's wrong with Washington, D.C. and Austin. That doesn't fix it. I mean, it takes policy. So he's absolutely right. We've written about this a few times when it comes to the kind of the busing stunt, if you will. Uh, We've talked about whether the quote unquote juice has been worth the squeeze, right? Uh, When it comes to the state's action uh, for border security efforts. Now, now, to be clear, right? I mean, I think most people are probably under on the same page with in the absence of action from the federal government on this issue, you know, someone's got to do something. But I think when it comes to lawmakers, especially lawmakers in this next legislative session who are going to be asked to foot the bill via taxpayer money, right? Provide or appropriate more money to the efforts of things like Operation Lone Star. They certainly should ask the question. It's certainly within their purview to say, okay, can we define what a successful mission looks like? One and two of the over $4 billion that has already been allocated to these efforts what are what are metrics right that show us on a path to that success right um, you still i think he mentioned you've still got caravans that are coming you've still got migrants coming over the border and so we can talk about how maybe we're curbing some sentiment of drugs i.e fentanyl right and stuff coming across the border but certainly we shouldn't just be writing a blank check we should talk about how whether that money's being used effectively and efficiently and if it's not lawmakers, policymakers should uh, should come up with solutions out how to best use that money. Yeah, I think, you know, the question of what does success look like is the best question we can ask. And I, I would imagine, you know, if we asked your average everyday, you know, Republican or conservative or even I would say moderate Texan, uh, what does success look like on the border? I think they would say that it's secure. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, that we're far from that, right? Um, and uh, I think it just shows that yet again, with the with the billions we've spent so far in, in Operation Lone Star, uh, it has been an abysmal failure because our border is not secure. Uh, there's a number of different opinions of what we can do uh, to fix that. Of course, we had Greg Abbott come out and say that he officially declared an invasion. I believe this is uh, just a, a reaction from pressure uh, from the Carrie Lake campaign and things like that that obviously didn't pan out. Um, so, but he, he basically didn't listen to anything new that they were doing. It's all just the same old, same old that we we're doing, but he just kind of came out and did a, a press release to score some points and he made some headlines and Fox news and things like that, but nothing has changed. Uh, we're still busing, you know, illegals across the state and to his, 
uh, to Slayton's point, um, it, he says later in the interview that, you know, we are absolutely working as a conduit for the cartel because what they are doing is they are getting these people to the border and then we are shipping them all over the United States. And we are basically uh, putting the cartel network up across the United States to enable more fentanyl abuse, to in, in, enable more human trafficking, uh, because they have little mules and little little helpers. And all of these people they're bringing in, they're bringing them in for a reason. Uh, not only that, not only are we helping the cartels, uh, we are helping uh, push towards, uh, the, the ultimate push towards amnesty, because eventually these, what, 10 million or more, I don't even know how many uh, the latest number is, uh, eventually there's going to be a legitimate push for amnesty. And when that that occurs, um, it's going to change the dynamics of a lot of things. And in a lot of states uh, in, in uh, the United States, you, you're counting them in the census. And so you're getting more representation. And so we are worsening the problem by moving, you know, migrants and illegals across the United States, where the most practical common sense solution that a lot of people balk at is take them and deport them out of the country. And yes, of course, oh, we don't have the authority to do this as a state. So what? Uh, yeah, I think even Ron DeSantis came out and said, just deport him, get him out of the country. You know, we kind of made our point with the buses, but if, if he was in Texas, he would be shipping them out of the country. Uh, how, how do we do that? Well, you know, that's, that's going to be a bigger problem we have to deal with. But if we're looking at a metric of success and what success looks like, it would be a completely secure border and it would be us repelling illegals and not allowing them to enter into the country, the ones that are already here to deport them back to their country of origin or honestly, wherever we can we can put them that is, is not in the United States. I would imagine that would be the answer. What success looks like from your general populace in Texas. I can tell you, you know, this if if taxpayers, especially taxpayers that are concerned about this issue, if you allow lawmakers to go into this next legislative session, appropriate more money for these efforts without simultaneously asking the the question or for metrics that that show that we are on a path to success, define what success looks like, then we're to blame. Right. If we allow you, you can tell if Republicans, Republicans that go right on Fox News and what have you and talk about this issue and how, how they believe in a strong border. You can tell if they're serious about that, if they don't actually address this issue next session and they just continue to write a blank check, uh, which, again, putting my cynical hat on so far was nothing more than a campaign ploy at the expense of taxpayers for Governor Greg Abbott. Right. Um, with no sign of what success looks like. We should demand better as taxpayers. You can be pro border security, right? And pro these for these efforts while simultaneously asking for accountability um, and this sort of thing. And we should absolutely demand as such. Yeah. And and the, the likely solution that I see coming down the pipe, and hopefully I'm wrong, is we're going to throw a few more billion dollars at Operation Lone Star, and we're going to get the same exact thing we've had for the last two. And they're going to you know dust their hands off and say, there you go. We dealt with it. Nothing changes. We still have a problem with the, and the, the border is not secure. And so uh, Texans need to know if that is what we get, uh, that is an abysmal failure. And we uh, we we did not even come close, nor are we on a path to even securing the border. It's going to take some bold legislation, and it's likely going to take an exercise in state sovereignty uh, to just do what we have to do in spite of the Biden administration's agenda. So we will see. We will see. We have a lot of new legislators. There could be some noise made about this. A lot of people worked out about it. 
We shall see. Of course, I'm I'm typically more realistic or very cautiously optimistic, uh, if that, when it comes to the the legislature. But we will see. You know, 2023 is only a month away, uh, and so we'll be getting started very very soon. So that is uh, all the time we have today. So we appreciate y'all being with us. Uh, please join us again next week, uh, next Thursday, and of course, check out our bonus episode with Representative Slayton tomorrow morning. Thank y'all. Have a good one. For even more content, follow us on social media at Texas Taxpayers on Facebook and Instagram at Texas underscore taxpayers on Twitter. Subscribe to The Fiscal Note, our weekly email jam-packed full of information important to Texas taxpayers at texastaxpayers.com slash subscribe. And then make sure to check out our Texas Prosperity Plan, texastaxpayers.com slash TPP. Thanks. (laughs) 